0: International Horse College's motto is people, safety and horse welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered Training Organisation number 31352. Our guest today is Linda Shaw. Linda's 28-year career as a full-time equestrian, breeder, coach, competitor has given her the opportunities to acquire and integrate knowledge and skills of a dressage horse and rider and to share this with other passionate horse people. Linda established River Range Warmblood Blood Stud in Rockhampton, central Queensland in 1988 with the purchase of a three-year-old Warm Blood Stallion Northern Classic. He was the first horse she trained to successfully compete at FEI level dressage and has since enjoyed the challenges of training a number of other horses up to and including Grand Prix level. In 1991, Linda travelled to England and France to study dressage and was inspired by the classical side of dressage training and harmony between horse and rider. This promotes the lightness of the aids and contact. Linda's ambition is to educate and encourage equestrians to appreciate the subtle capabilities and vulnerabilities of their horses and to develop appropriate skills to form rewarding partnerships in the saddle and on the ground. Linda offers riders skills and understanding that will inform across various equestrian disciplines, both English and Western styles, in hand as well as under saddle. Following Linda's association with the imported Morgan Stallion Ranch Boss Cortez in 2006, she became interested in Western dressage and soon became passionate about that and what it could offer the rider who was not interested or able to own a classical dressage saddle or ride a big moving horse, and particularly how any horse can benefit from classical dressage training to advance its fitness and rideability. In 2013, Linda presented Western Dressage at Equitana for the first time, exciting riders about this new discipline. Linda was a demonstration rider for USA guest presenter Lynn Palm at Equitana in 2014. Linda currently conducts clinic throughout Australia for English and Western dressage and general horsemanship. River Range Warm Blood Stud was established by Linda Shaw over 20 years ago to produce quality performance horses for the disciplines of dressage, show jumping and eventing that are of sound mind and body, able to compete at the highest levels in these disciplines, but trainable by the non-professional rider. The stud currently has four resident stallions, I've got to ask you about your maths here in a minute, Linda. Three warm-blood stallions, one Welsh cob and a purebred Morgan stallion. Anyway, Dressage to be sure, which is a great name, I must add, is the training side of the business, which focuses on offering quality coaching services for riders and horses at all levels and breeds classical and Western dressage and currently conducts in-house and around Australia offers in-house training for clients' horses. All training work with horses at Dressage to be sure is conducted by Linda Shaw. Linda also prepares and competes client horses at specific breed shows and Dressage competitions. Linda, I'm not sure if we need to keep going with the interview. We've said so much already. (laughs) Says a lot Yeah, Yeah, how are you today anyway? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Linda, I've got to ask you, the four resident stallions and you've got three warm bloods, one Welsh pony, and one Morgan Stallion. Is it five resident stallions you've got?
1: Uh, well, it's actually adjusted since then. At the moment, we've got six <laughs> resident stallions. Okay. The Morgan Stallion was one from Tasmania. He's, he was here for two years training and he's since gone home. Mm-hmm. And we now have three warm bloods, one cob pony, one German riding pony and a paint.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, so that keeps you busy in those breeding season, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah.
1: We don't actually, I don't do a huge amount of breeding mm-hmm. um, with my big boys these days because I've just got too busy with training. But yep. three of the stallions are, are under saddle.
0: Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, Linda, we normally start off with a favourite quote, not a maths test. Um, <laughs> have you got a favourite quote for us?
1: I do. It's one I learned from Kira Kirkland when I got the chance to sit in her yard for a couple of days and really and watch her train her horses and other people. Yep. And one of the things that she did tell somebody is lift the underneck, don't pull the head down. And that changed a lot of things that I see the focus on too many people is pulling the head down into position and then yes. fixing the rest. She was all about lifting the underneck and the difference that makes on horses is amazing and that's, that's my go-to quote these days.
0: Yeah, I'm just writing that down, actually. It's one that I haven't heard before, but I think it. you've got to understand a bit about the anatomy and training. But It's then...
1: more, yeah, it's more a mental focus. Instead of take, taking the hand low and pulling the head down, yes. you actually focus on lifting the underneck, and I've, I've studied further into that, and yeah, it's made a massive difference that, and I take that even further now with the lift of the shoulders and understanding the upward thrust of
0: the horse. Mm, mm, mm. We were sort of in your in your bio, we talked about establishing River Range Warmblood Stud that was in 1988. But tell us about your very first memories with horses.
1: <laughs> I don't come from a, an equestrian background at all. None of my family rides. I was the odd one out. Someone said I was the milkman's daughter somewhere there. Yeah. But um, I just I'm the odd one out. i have I'm I'm horse mad since the time I could walk and talk. And one of our earliest memories is where we lived. The next-door neighbour had some ponies in the paddock beside us and me and a friend used to grab one that was really quiet, leading behind the shed, put a rope around his neck, jump on and go round and round in circles um, until he got got, got tired of us and team off, and we'd just jump off.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and my very first pony was a pony that my father got as part payment for a job and it wasn't even broken in.
0: Oh, no. That was your first pony and not broken <laughs> in. You know, I, I hear some of these stories and I absolutely cringe. I absolutely cringe, you know, that. <laughs> You know, just jumping on ponies and riding them with no safety protection, no instruction, no nothing, you know, and you wonder how you live through it. And, you know, are we going overboard? Are we are we overdoing it these days with all the safety? Or, you know, maybe we've got more people going to come into the horse industry because they've been kept safe at the, the same time. Maybe you were just yeah. lucky. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think I was just terribly enthusiastic. Yep. had a natural coordination and balance that it wasn't a really massive deal this pony was only 11 hands so she wasn't very big mm. um she used to get tethered out every day before i went to school that was my job i'd tether her out and she'd have a tether spot on the road every day with water and food and i'd go and get her when i got home from school and bring her back in again so i had that pony for over 20 years so kind of done too much wrong but um i think a lot of yeah and i when i had her when we broke her in I didn't own a saddle. I didn't own a bridle. We put a halter on her. I jumped on, and <laughs> yes. eventually I put a bridle on her and used to gallop her everywhere because she liked to go really fast. Um, it's the sort of thing you read about in in kids' books more than anything. I literally, mm. I, I lived the the child the children's books where you know you have that amazing pony and the partnership that you fanged everywhere. You didn't ride a bike. I rode my pony everywhere.
0: Yep. Yep. Yep.
1: It took me a long time to learn how to ride the saddle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. From there, I'm thinking about a career with horses. Were you always going to have a career with horses? Did you have another career first? Was it a decision that you made to have a career with horses?
1: It just gradually came out of it in the fact that I found I really enjoyed coaching and helping other people. Yep. I am trained for another career. I'm basically trained as an administrator for, you know, in a business to to run offices, and I did that for years. So for many years, I burnt the candle at both ends, basically. I worked full-time. I worked my horses early in the morning, and I'd go home late at night and work until 9 o'clock in the evening. I'd coach on the weekends, come back home again, and go straight back to work again. So I ran the business and worked full-time for quite a lot of years before Mm -hmm. I went completely full-time. But it just gradually grew into it, and the fact that it just – what I enjoyed doing.
0: Yep, yep, yep. What do you think if someone says to you that they want to work in the horse industry, what do you think the core skills or the character traits they need before they start working in the horse industry?
1: Uh, Being prepared to have a very high work ethic, be prepared to do long hours, work hard and always go out of your way to do that extra little bit. Um, I saw it when I went over and worked in England for a little while and just basically got a job in a stable and worked there, the more you are prepared to put out for your employer and do the extra hours and come down after hours to help and do everything, the more you receive. And that's the best advice I can give to anybody, just have a very, very high work ethic and be prepared to put the extra in because you will get 10 times more back and obviously be prepared to do 12 hours a day, seven days a week with hardly a break.
0: I think that's right too. I think as an employer, if you've got a few people doing the same job, but you've got one who is always putting out the extra, always prepared to do just that little bit extra, you know, just that extra 2%, just that. Yeah. And it's not much more. It's just a little bit extra, you know, mm. yes, I'm happy to do it and just have the right attitude. They're the ones that you're going to offer the opportunities to.
1: Absolutely. And mm. I found I got that. I was given the opportunity then to go to big events because I was reliable. And also, you know, you gave out the extra. And even if it was a day you weren't working, you'd get thrown the opportunity. Do you want mm. to come to badminton yes. with us? Do yes. a little bit of strapping and give you the rest of the day off. you want to, And for those things, I got to go to badminton. I got to go to Windsor Horse Show. Uh, I got to go to Windsor three day event, all for being a light strapper. I actually got to groom for a high-level hunter person in Windsor Horse Show right in Santa Ring. And wow. Only because I, I went for the extra thing and said, I'm here and does anyone want a hand?
0: Yes, yes, yep. And it's also the sort of thing that you, the competitions that you'd be going to on your day off just to go and have a look, but being able to get yeah. into the extra boxes and the extra places – you know, the extra access yes. certainly makes a difference.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I still do it now, even as a professional, because I, I run a lot of events and help behind the scenes with a lot of things. And we're yep. heading to Sydney for of the CDI next week. And I send a note down to the work organiser, said, look, I've got the Friday afternoon free. Do you want anything yes. um, yes. done? you want a hand? Yep. So yep. You, know, you get a ringside seat for the, for the Grand Prix for collecting sheep.
0: What's yes. better than that? Yes, that's right. That's right.
1: I think a lot of people don't think to do that because, oh, well, you know, says so make an offer be there you get to know people and you get far more benefit out of it than the small amount of hours that you put in
0: yeah yeah and you know thinking that a lot of events are run by volunteers you know most events are run yeah. by volunteers so if you can just volunteer and it's only a couple of hours you volunteer that time and uh, certainly appreciate yeah. it yep
1: yeah and you get the opportunity to talk to the officials and the high-level judges because yep. you're
0: there yep Yep, and not real hard work either, collecting sheets. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do you think is the best thing about working in the horse industry?
1: Ideally, as a lot of people say, if your work is your hobby, your home and hose you're made, and my work is my hobby. I love what I do. Um yes, we get off days and you go out and something stomps on you, stumps you, or you just have a bad day. But for the most part, I walk outside and and consider how lucky I am to manage my own timetable and time. And yes, I work hard. I do do seven days a week, sometimes 12 hours a day. But my work is my passion and my hobby. What can be better than that?
0: Yes, 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 for sure, for sure. You talked about Kira Kirkland. Who else has influenced you?
1: I had a, a British lady for a, a lot of years. She was based in Brisbane called Sue Anderson. Some yes. people still remember her. She um, she came from England. She was in Australia for quite some time. She did all of her initial training. She worked for Franz Rokovansky, who came out of the Spanish riding school and so forth. She had an amazing rapport with horses and what she could do. This was a person that, I'd had so many injuries cross-country and whatnot, she actually couldn't physically sit straight anymore. But she could still ride straight and she could still do a lot of things with horses that others couldn't. She called a spade a spade. You either got on with her or you didn't. I met her when I first bought my first warm-blood stallion and she helped me get him right through to medium-advanced level. Mm -hmm. And she was a huge influence because she has that incredible work ethic. Everything's done for the benefit of the horses. Um, no gadgets, no fancy tricks, it's just all pure quality training. And it was through her I got to go to England and work as well. So she really influenced everything I did early
0: on with what she taught me. Yep. What about horses? You've you've had some great horses.
1: Oh, I've had some amazing horses. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I suppose it's a bit like choosing your favourite child. But if you're going to choose just one, who do you think would be the one that you think has been instrumental in changing your career, your career path?
1: Um, well, that's easy. That would be Copenhagen. He was uh, my second blood stallion, and mm-hmm. I bred him. I did everything from following him down right through to riding him in his very first Grand Prix test. And he was one of those horses that made everything incredibly easy. And it was wasn't till and I unfortunately did have to sell him for financial reasons and whatnot. But um every horse after him seemed incredibly hard. And you sort of wonder why was everything so easy on that horse? He he could do his one time tempies were party tricks. He he could do twenty-one one down the centre line and I was training him at FEI with no help mm. because mm. I couldn't find a trainer that really suited me. It was him I actually got my very first lessons with Kira Kirkland on. And she completely changed the way I looked at what I did um, due to to that lesson. And that was a lesson I actually won through Horse Magazine, Mm -hmm. uh, Horse Fields, actually. (laughs) I actually (laughs) won a competition, drove that horse from Rockhampton to Melbourne for a 40-minute lesson.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, Um, wow.
1: Yeah, that's commitment. And, you yeah. know, I contacted Kira when I went out overseas in 2006 and said, I don't know if you remember me, yada, yada, yada. And she said, we actually do. We still talk about the person <laughs> who drove 2,000 kilometers for a 40-minute lesson. She was so impressed with my commitment to that. They rang me up the second day and said, she wants to give you another lesson. So wow. she gave me a second wow. lesson
0: yep.
1: because of that commitment and such. And that horse changed a lot of what I did in that he was so easy. And it wasn't until I started training his son – that I realized the reason he was so easy is the fact that some horses are just born that way. They've read the book. There's not an ounce of um, stubbornness or dirt or anything in them, and they just said, you tell me what you want and we'll try. And they try their absolute heart out for you every time you sit on. There's no better feeling than that.
0: Yeah, yeah. What do you think's been your proudest moment?
1: Proudest moment would easily be, persevering with the son of Copenhagen who broke his neck as a four-year-old and never giving up on the horse. He developed a taxia in his back legs. He paralyzed his back legs. And I never gave up on him. And I trained and worked with him for a couple of years. And the first six months was hard Mm -hmm. because it was in hand mostly. And got that horse back from over 60% paralysis in his hind limbs to the able to do PF, Levard, Canter Pirouettes and Flying Changes.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: That's my proudest moment. That taught me to learn from adversity like that. Uh, I don't wish it on anybody, but what that taught me was priceless.
0: Yep, yep, yep.
1: And I never gave up on him because he never gave up on himself.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thinking about where you are now, you know, which may not be a particular horse problem, you know, where you've got six stallions at start, but you're training, you you're a real expert in your field, okay, both in classical dressage, competing, Grand Prix, but also in Western dressage. And, you know, you've got six stallions, so that sort of says, you know, a bit as well about just your knowledge about, you know, horses, horse handling, horses on the ground. What do you think has been your biggest challenge, and it may be a business challenge, to get to where you are now?
1: Uh, I don't know, it's hard to say. My biggest challenge to sometimes is running in running the business is, I'm very much, uh, I fly solo. Yes. I um, don't earn enough money to have staff or anything. I don't have people tacking up horses and bringing them out. I have to work around fitting in enough lessons to pay the bills yep. and um, you know, and still give all the horses that are here in training. And At the moment, there's eight in training. So if you imagine, I've got eight in training, got yards to clean, stables to clean. I actually do all my own farrier work. Um, we do most of my own breaking in here and et cetera, plus all the lessons. Managing all the administrations for the clinics, and those are my biggest challenges. it's just keeping ahead of everything. Um, I don't have um, a partner who helps the share of the costs and and the expenses of the property and everything. So the whole lot's on my shoulders to still go out every day to that extent with that level and still enjoy what I'm doing um, and have a clear head for training every horse as an individual as well and not letting I suppose the stress of Simply running this place get to me and have it um, affect any of my training and my horses.
0: Yep, yep, yep. So you've really got to manage your time, haven't you? You know, I mean, you, you're fitting that much into the day, and you're coping and not getting sort of overstressed by just, I suppose, getting overwhelmed by it all. So you've got to have some good time management. What's some good time management tips you would tell people about managing their their day with horses and running their horse business?
1: Probably having very much that timetable of stating, okay, I have to get up at this time. I have to have the horses fed by this time. I have to have the breakfast finished by this time. Pretty much, and being disciplined in in your timeline to a large extent. Um, being able to be firm enough with with clients and saying you can come at this specific time, and you need to be on time, and you need to be, you know, come through. I can be a little bit flexible, um, and just keeping going you do you know you'll do work three or four horses and you think oh i just want to sit down for a minute but also taking that break and coming in having a cup of tea or cup of coffee sitting relaxing for a few minutes and then you can go out and do another four hours straight that Mm -hmm. sort of thing Mm -hmm. so take the time out to give yourself those small breaks yes you've got to get a lot done but you look at it as small blocks not as if you looked at the whole picture, you stand back and I have you know, a few clients saying, how do, how do you keep going? How do you do this? And I went, well, you don't look at it as a massive block. If you did, you do, you really would be overwhelmed. And it's always one step at a time. Things get thrown into the works in that you'll look up while I'm riding. I'm lucky with my where my arena is. I can see nearly every horse on the property at most times, and I'm always doing visual checks just to make sure someone hasn't done something wrong. Um, and you look up and notice that someone's in a the paddock they shouldn't be or you've watched this horse lay down four times in the last hour and gone, uh-oh. So the whole schedule changes for that day because you've got to go and adjust something and yep. fix something or call the vet. You know, suddenly you've heard this twang and bang behind and you look out and someone's limping away from the fence. You go, okay, we put everything away. I mean, I had – the worst trauma of this is quite a few years ago. I was working a horse in the arena, and I'm riding. and I looked up, and I had some babies banging around a paddock. and I and I literally looked at them and yelled, "You better stop, or you're going to break a frigging leg." And one horse galloped up, turned oh, the no. corner, and shattered little. Oh no! So you know, to deal with to throw that into the works as well, you then got to go, okay, put the horse away, call the vet, go and check on the horse. There's nothing you can do, but mm, mm thing, I mean, that's the worst case scenario, and I've been there and it has happened, you know. Whereas it'd be like a parent yelling at a child who's running up and down the stairs, stop doing that, you will hurt yourself, and you're back next minute they've fallen down the stairs and they've yep. got a busted arm. And yep. this was yep. the same thing, only, you know, it's a lot more traumatic. Yes. But you've got to be able to be flexible and take those things in your stride as well as then carry on and do the rest of the day after all of that's happened.
0: But I think the other thing is too, being level-headed enough to say, right, what's the highest priority here? What do I need to yes. do? And not going into a panic. That's yes. just level-headedness. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You've got
1: to keep yeah. that with horses because things go wrong. Things do happen and they can happen in the blink of an eye with you can have all the safety features in place, um, even in yourself in riding and whatnot. You can do all the right things, but you've got that unmanageable factor which is the horses themselves that they will do something silly whether you're sitting on them leading them and i suppose i'm pedantic in my own safety management and i always have this mental picture in my head of the worst thing could go wrong with what i'm doing so i'm super careful and i see a lot of people in different areas and i think that is so crazy what you're, what that person is doing because that horse fly kicks gets a fright, um, anything can happen, Mm. and that person's close because they're not keeping that in mind. And I hear of a young girl at a show recently that they were prepping a horse. He got a fright, swung around, hit her in the head, knocked her out, she fell on the ground underneath and he stood on her. (sighs) So, you know, and she's in hospital with brain damage because of something so simple of just a tiny little lack of awareness or just a really unfortunate accident that things can go pear-shaped so quickly that not enough people take that into account when they're around them. Yes, they yes. They just don't have that second instinct to just be doubly careful all the time.
0: And even the very quiet, well-trained horses can still do something a bit unpredictable. They're not machines. They are unpredictable Absolutely. animals. Yep, yep.
1: Ironically, they seem to be the ones that hurt people the most because people get very complacent. Mm-hmm. You can relax to a certain degree, but you can never be complacent around. Yep. Not completely.
0: Yep. Mm. Linda, thinking about your transition, not not transition, I don't know if you call it that, from classical dressage, but also now going into Western dressage, I want you to think from a, a Western dressage trainer, what's a common fault that you see with the riders that are starting off? You know, if you sort of go to a clinic and you see – Riders that you haven't seen before, again and again. What's a, a common fault that you see with them, and what do you do? How do they fix it?
1: A common fault is the the perception of of what normal West you know normal Western showing is, which is a either too and too slow and the the head way too low. So they feel they've got to slow the horse right down and pull the head down. So teaching them that Western dressage is actually much closer to a, an old fashioned classical style than even what current competition dressage is and showing them that the horse doesn't have to be have its nose on the floor or really low in its pole in order to be round in the back Um, that they don't have to have their hands down below the wither in order to achieve any sort of frame that they can sit up they can lift the hand a little bit and and you work on much more of the the natural elevation coming up through the horse to develop the collection and the lightness that comes from that. So for the most part, it's either generally speeding people up a little bit and getting them to allow the horse to lift up through its shoulder and its core instead of thinking of pulling the head down into the frame and, and feeling they've got to lower their hands right down and tug the head down.
0: Okay. Okay. That's mm. good. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now, have a look, horsechats.com. Now, is there a book on Western dressage that you'd like to recommend or is this the book that you need to write for us?
1: probably the book that I need to write for a lot (laughs) of things. Um, There is one book called 101 Exercises for Western Dressage. I Mm -hmm. haven't actually had a read of it, but there is that. At this stage, um, there's a lot of small articles and information on, on the internet and so forth. No one's written... Um, I think there is one book written by a lady in the US on a bit of Western dressage. Even reading some of the cowboy dressage books that have been done by and Beth Hallamy helps a little bit because the disciplines are very, very similar. But reading any, training through any classical dressage horsemanship uh, style manuals will actually help with the Western dressage. The main thing that people have to realize is it's not, just because we call it jog and loaf and such, it's not necessarily slower. For me, it's just a much softer way of going, okay. allowing the horse to be really relaxed and soft in their way of going. Um, and using, I use all the same exercises um, and styles for both the Western dressage horses and the English dressage horses. It's just allowing the Western ones to work with a lot softer impulsion. It's not lack of impulsion. It's just softer. For me, that's, that's how I explain it, yeah.
0: Now, with Western dressage, what level do they go to? Do they go to Grand Prix?
1: Not at this stage, they don't go to Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Um they've just introduced the level four in America, which will come into Australia soon, which will have um, I believe, flying change they'll have the flying changes in it. They've already got half pass in their level three. Half the their level three that they do is like a, a baby medium. It has no flying changes, just simple changes, mm-hmm. but half pass and there and countercanners and all that sort of thing. They're bringing in the level four, which will have the, the flying changes, and I think they're talking about pirouettes in that as well. But yeah, they haven't quite up through the Grand Prix yet because a lot of riders really aren't at that level ready to compete to do that. Sure. Because of most of the people who are coming into Western dressage are very much that ground roots style that they're not much above a novice level rider.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you're comparing English dressage novice level, so um, but yeah, they are they're working on it, but they're taking their time doing it to try and make sure they get it right.
0: Okay. Okay. What are you looking forward to now, Linda? What does your future hold?
1: Um, playing a lot more with, um, I've got a cob pony here and then we head off to Sydney um, next Tuesday to do um, the Sydney CDI for the five-year-old ponies and starting to produce them. Him crossed over my warm-blood mares to produce some really nice um, dressage ponies and so forth and um, got some, some nice young horses coming up and through and just expanding my clinics and, and things. Um, but yeah, mostly just, I suppose I've, I've done all the big competitions. I'm not as competition orientated as what I used to be. I enjoy events. Mm-hmm. Um, I do more horse shows for the Morgan horse and the, and the Welsh ponies and things. Um, and I just, I suppose I really enjoy that, that variety, you know, it's between going to an events such as Sydney CDI to, we did Morgan horse nationals a couple of weeks ago and, um, we've got pony dressage I've got a new stallion here a new German riding pony stallion for a client that we're training him up for Brisbane CDI he's really exciting so yeah and I really enjoy running clinics and, and working with all my different riders for that sort of thing and teaching people I suppose my theories around training which are a little bit different in some of what I do compared to the conventional trainers. I was um, just
0: about to ask you what your philosophy with horses is. So if you'd like to just briefly tell us that, that would be good.
1: Yeah, I can. Um, so what I work on, particularly when I'm training, is I work on lifts before length. So okay. that um, I, if you teach your horse to activate and lift its core, rather than focusing on how round it is in its pole and bringing the head down, focus on lifting and activating the core of the horse and there has been scientific research study done in that over 50% of a horse's upward thrust actually comes from its front legs, not its back legs. If you, That's interesting, whereas isn't it? Everyone talks yeah, about, exactly, yeah, whereas exactly. everyone talks about engaging the back legs and driving the back legs under, if you drive the back legs under but you don't teach the horse to elevate through its cool first, you might as well be accelerating a car into a brick wall with no ramp because it's just going to compress and crunch because there's no space. I mm. work on teaching the horse to use its upward thrust in its front legs, and every horse has it to some degree. Some have more than others. Some know how to naturally use it. And then on the other hand, you get the problem horses who have learnt to, through protecting themselves, whether it's bad riding or an injury, they've learnt to lock down their core, their front core and their shoulders, and they've lost their upward thrust. So no amount of driving the hind legs forward underneath will actually lift the shoulders. The shoulders have to come up. the thrust in the front legs there is scientific proof and um research proving this and i have found i can fix i fixed a lot of broken horses that have come through here that have lost their canter they've lost their self-carriage they've got really heavy on the forehand all that sort of thing and i get them all i can get them all to actually start to really dance up through the shoulders um and just start to really enjoy what they're doing again Um, through just going through a different focus. It takes longer. Um, There's no fancy tricks. There's no fancy gadgets that can be used to do it. But you can fix and correct a lot of horses that have locked their backs down. The more you teach the shoulders to lift, the more relaxation you can get through the back. But if you drive the hind legs under before you fix the shoulders and the back, all you create is more tension through the momentum. So... I suppose, you yeah, know, those are my main philosophies and theories. Yes, I offer the horse to stretch forward and down and lengthen the back when we need to, and my horses all follow the bit and follow the contact anywhere I put it really lightly once they've learned how to use their back properly. But I don't focus on driving the horse forward and lock the length first. That comes last for me. Yep,
0: yep. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm interested in that research, and you, know, you might um, be able to just provide some more details of that, and if you've got a link or anything, we might be able to put it in your page. It's,
1: there's a French man, French gentleman in America, Jean-Luc Cornille, I think his name
0: is, something okay. like that. Yep.
1: But his website is called Science of Motion, and while some of his information you read and it's just gobbledygook and mind-blowing and sort of going, oh my God, I can't understand this, but... A lot of my uh, reasoning behind this and looking for it was because I had to train a horse that was paralyzed in the back legs Um, and I had to find out how did I teach this horse how to rebalance. Now, a horse that has ataxia puts locks down all of their weight and their balance into their front legs to the degree that when they canter, they actually bounce up behind because they cannot feel what their back legs are doing. When I first started retraining him, I used conventional methods thinking, okay, well, I'll tap the back legs up until he finds engagement. And it didn't work. Um, I had to take a different process. I had to work out that, okay, I have to teach him to stop loading his front legs and bring his front legs up. And I actually did this by just simply tapping him down the shoulder, gradually got him um, using his upward thrust and his front legs better, which made him take more weight on his hind legs and he developed pf out of that and out of the pf we got Lavard and once he understood tap tap up meant lift the front legs off the ground and find your balance um yeah he eventually competed at back at elementary level and was playing around with medium level work so he taught me all that that i understood to stand um, about rebalancing a horse by lifting the core and the shoulders, and I'm not talking about physically lifting, but actually redirecting the horse's energy that it can use that upward through the shoulders again. Mm. Well, after I'd done that, so I then found this other website and read the science behind it, and went, "Oh, actually, that's what I've been doing." <laughs> yes, but mine came out of adversity because what do you do with a horse that's um, that paralyzed in the back legs, and if it you know, they're scary to ride because they trip in front, they go down. They actually go down like a ton of bricks. You have to support and carry the horse. Retraining him was like dancing with a partially paralyzed partner, where you've got to do most of the work for them.
0: Yep. So yep.
1: the learning that I did on that um, was pretty amazing. So and it changed a lot of what I do now, and it's the philosophy. It's because of him that I've got that I've got the understanding now of how to relax and then engage the horse's core to get the shoulders to lift and come up. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah.
0: Mm. That's interesting. And um, I'd love to get you to come back and talk a bit more detail about not just that, but, you know, I was sort of thinking Western dressage, but I think there's quite a few different areas that the listeners would enjoy learning from you. So, um, yeah, if you're able mm. to do that. Linda, before we go, I'm going to get you to say your contact details. These contact details would be at horsechats.com. Slash Linda Shaw. So just go to horsechats.com, search for Linda or search for Shaw. But um, yeah, just in case someone's got their pen out, Linda can I have some contact details for you. What's your website?
1: Yeah, uh, my website is www.riverrange.com.au okay. and um, my mobile number is 0417 797. Eight one five, and the email address is on the website uh, if they need it. There's lots of information on the website on a lot of different things that I do, including my training philosophies and so forth as well, yeah.
0: Good. All right, Linda, thanks very much for talking to us and hopefully we'll catch up with you sometime again very soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Glennis. Okay, bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe.